as we saw last week in John 17, we find Jesus doing what he often did. He was praying. Now, in the text, we actually don't know where Jesus is. He and his disciples began in the upper room where he instituted the Lord's Supper, where he washed the disciples' feet. And then at the end of chapter 4, 14, it might not come out as common or we might not see it, Jesus actually says, let us rise and go. Now, it's possible that at that time they actually left the upper room, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and they are now near the Garden of Gethsemane. Or, for the past two chapters, they could have been standing in the upper room. As very often happens in our lives, we will say, it's time to go, and then we'll stand and talk for hours on end. But the location of where Jesus is isn't what's significant about this text. There is great reason to believe this prayer is not the prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. But what we find and what is significant is Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, is now over. Jesus' personal ministry to these disciples, these apostles, is now over. Jesus' life is soon to be over. And what we find Jesus doing right before he was betrayed was he was praying to his Father. And we are allowed, we are allowed to hear this prayer between God the Son and God the Father Almighty. And it's recorded that we might hear it. This prayer was given for our benefit. And as we saw last week, this prayer is structured very much like the Lord taught his disciples to pray. This week, we are going to look at what Jesus prayed. What he allowed us to hear him pray. And I hope that we are glad that he prayed this prayer for us. Now, if you're just jumping in with us and you haven't been with us in the Gospel of John. We've come to John chapter 17. And my role this morning is to preach what the text says. And I'm trying to, by God's grace, with a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere, sincere faith, my goal this morning is to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us why Jesus prayed this prayer. Because when R.C. Sproul preached this text, he said, one of the problems with preaching through the Bible is that you have no control over the themes that you encounter. And God has a habit of putting before the preacher hard sayings, which provoke endless debate and controversy. Now, there are many wonderful pastors and teachers and professors and theologians and Sunday school teachers who have claimed that what I'm about to say doesn't make sense, that it's arrived at an illogical form and we have to look for it, for it to be in the text. This is what some believe. But this morning, I'm not here demanding that you believe me because I think it's true. This morning, it is my job not to draw the proverbial line, which side do you stand on? My job this morning, my heart's desire is to make much of Jesus. 
My job is to reveal what God has written in his inerrant and infallible word. And it's up to us, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to see what this text says itself. For this word, as Jesus says, is his truth. This is the word that he has given us, the disciples, from God the Father. Sproul goes on to say, when you preach this text, this text is a text that is called the church emptier. This is one of those texts that has a habit of reducing the size of the congregation. And as we'll see, this text should cause you trouble. It's a hard saying. And if I or anyone else tells you it's not a hard saying, we're lying to you. Because what I believe this text actually teaches us flies in the face and is contrary to our own experiences. Because what this text does simultaneously is it holds up this paradox. That God is sovereign over all creation. That nothing happens outside of his almighty power. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, everything in creation works according to his purpose and will. Yet while at the exact same time the Bible reveals that humans are totally and completely responsible for their decisions. That God is never attributed as the author of sin and that we have chosen sin because we love our sin. And at no time can God violate the will of his creatures. But for the purpose of revealing God's own glory, God the Father, according to his purpose, has worked all things according to his will, and he sent the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem his people. And that his plan of redemption of those people is not left up to chance or possibility. His plan to redeem his people is sure, it is certain, it is definite, and it is accomplished with no contingency plans. There isn't a plan B. It's accomplished through the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ himself. And what I hope to proclaim to you this morning is what I believe that the scriptures in their entire, entirety teaches. That the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God, intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to him from the Father. In eternity past, and to apply the accomplishment of his sacrifice by the Holy Spirit. And that the death of Christ was intended to secure the salvation of God's people alone. This is one of those doctrines in scriptures that I would not believe it if the Bible didn't teach it. And much like the doctrine of the Trinity, as we speak of this doctrine of the atonement, this one verse doesn't say everything that is said. We can't just look to one verse and know everything about what the Bible says on it. But what I want us to see this morning what this text presents for us this morning is that Jesus has glorified the Father by redeeming his people. And that Jesus has sent his people 
into the world to glorify the Father. Jesus has glorified the Father by redeeming his people, and Jesus has sent his people into the world to glorify his Father. Before we look at the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, is there anything that we should do that should concern us more than your own glory and the glory of your Son? Give us ears this morning to hear the words of Jesus, that his prayer might be our prayer. Father, we pray for those who are ill and those who are hurting. As I look at this congregation, I'm reminded of the illnesses of those here and those who have loved ones that are not here. I'm reminded of the brokenness of the sin-scarred lives from our own choices and from the choices of others. We come to you as your people, petitioning you. As our Lord Jesus Christ told us to petition you, heal us, Father. We long to feel your touch. We ask you to be with the Vanderpool family this morning. Draw near to them and comfort them. Heal those who are sick, Lord. Heal those who are hurting. We also ask that you unite us. That we might be one as you are one with the Father. Father, we ask as we look into our community and we see our friends and family, our co-workers, who proclaim to know you, yet they do not live under your kingship. Father, draw them near to you through the preaching of your gospel. Reveal yourself to them. May they come to know your promises that you have given your church through Jesus Christ. May you call them out of the darkness of their lives, the darkness of their hearts, and may you reveal to them everlasting life through the glory of your Son. May we be a testimony of that glory and grace. May our hearts and minds not be seeking our self-righteousness, but may we love our neighbor as you have loved us. Father, you command us to pray for our leaders, for those in power and authority over us. So, Father, we pray for our president and our vice president, for our senators and representatives, for our governor and our local officials. Father, give them supernatural wisdom and love. May they stand for justice and seek mercy. May they give voice to those who have none. May they give privileges to those who have none. Father, we pray for Jeff and Katie Saunders and their two children, Emery and Ezra. Bless them as they proclaim the gospel to the people in Japan. Protect their marriage. 
protect their family. Give them hope, not in their own strength, but in the power of your great name. Father, we ask that you bring peace in the world. Jesus, come quickly. And may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. During a wedding ceremony, a common practice that has actually fallen to the wayside is that brides wear was called a blusher veil. A blusher veil, as compared to a fingertip, a waltz, a chapel, a birdcage, or a cathedral veil, is a veil that was worn to protect and cover the face of the bride so that during the wedding, no one would see her. But at that right time, at that defining moment of the ceremony, the groom would lift the veil of his bride and her glory would be revealed. What we find here in John 17, verse 1, is that the hour has now come. This hour has been looming. Jesus has spoken of it throughout his entire ministry. And when we come to the upper room, right before we come to the upper room in John 12, Jesus tells us, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour encapsulates the purpose of Jesus' coming. This hour that cannot be forced because people have tried to force it. This hour in which the Father has planned to reveal His glory finally through Jesus Christ has now come. It is at this hour that the Son will be glorified. And we see the wedding of these two themes. The glory of God being revealed in Christ and the hour of coming. Everything Christ has done has been for the glory of the Father. According to John 1.14, a result of the incarnation is that we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is doing is he's alluding to Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses came down from the mountain and the glory of the Lord was revealed in his face. But here John tells us that the word became flesh and has made God known. Jesus tells us that this is purpose for all the signs that he has performed to reveal the glory of God, as he says in John 2. And it's as if these signs 
And this time was built to become greater and greater at the culmination of his cross. It is at the incarnation that the Son emptied himself. It is at the cross that the veil is lifted and God's glory is most magnified in Jesus. His deepest desire is for the veil to be removed and that it become evident that the radiance of his glory is that he is the exact imprint, the same nature as the God who sent him. It's at the cross that even though he was born in the likeness of men, John has revealed, he has told us that the word became flesh so that we might see his glory. For Jesus, the ultimate revelation of this glory is his death and humiliation. It is at the cross that we see God's divine revelation. It is at the cross where we are introduced to God's grace. And it's interesting, in verse 4, Jesus speaks of it as past tense. I glorified you on earth. It is though the, the moment that he sent off the betrayer, he set this plan into motion that his sacrificial death, his triumphal resurrection, will be the ultimate sign of who he is and what he has come to do. This is what Jesus is praying for. This is what he said in John 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and, the God, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and, his, and glorify him at once. It is at the cross that Jesus is glorified because it's at the cross that he accomplishes the work that God gave him to do. This is what he says in the rest of verse 4. I glorified you on earth, earth, having established the work that you have given me to do. God has sent Jesus into the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is what Jesus came to do. He came into the world to save a world from their sins. For this is what he says in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 17. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, over all mankind, over the created order, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In the Gospel of John, knowing is believing. The disciples became Jesus' friends because they knew the Father's plan for them. Over and over again, John equates true knowing with true believing. This is what he says in verses 7 through 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them your words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. To know the Father, or to know Jesus, is to know the Father. 
To know Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. But yet as we see, both here and in John 3.18, the scriptures absolutely, unequivocally divide the world in two groups. Those who believe and those who do not believe. For Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. The world is lost without Jesus. And what John tells us is that the world also hates Jesus. The world did not know him. The world could not see him. This world could not bear his words because they desired the will of their father, the devil, more than the words of life. This is the world that Jesus came to save. The scriptures are clear. In this world, there are those who will believe in Jesus, and there will be those who do not believe in Jesus. And they are described as those whom you have given me. In verse 2, 6, 9, and 24 of our passage, they are described as those who have been given out of the world to Christ In this prayer, Jesus is revealing that it is the Holy Trinity. God the Son fulfills the work that was given to him by God the Father to achieve the redemption of his people that have been given to him. This is what he says in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. In verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world out of those I am not I am not praying for the world out for those whom you have given me for they are yours all of mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them In this prayer Jesus is revealing that his mission is accomplished It is accomplished according to the Holy Trinity's plan to save his people for his own glory. And the glory which Jesus speaks isn't just the glory of the cross. For what we see here is he's speaking of another glory. A glory that he has from the foundation of the world, but also a glory that he will receive that he once had. That means that everything that Christ has done is for his glory to do the work that the Father has given him. To do the work and the will that the Father sent him to do. And this is the work that Jesus tells us he has come and he has accomplished. Hear these words from John 3, or sorry, John 6, 34, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. The Father's plan was established in history and is accomplished in history at the cross. But that cross is just a glimpse of the glory that the Father had planned from the foundation of the world to accomplish the redemption for His people that He had given to the Son. This is what the context demands. And this is the grace of God. That God the Father sent the Son, that the Son would do the will of the Father. That God the Father sent the Son, that the Son might do as the Father commanded him. That God the Father sent the Son, that he would do all that he sees the Father do. This is the Father sending the Son to accomplish his work and our redemption. And the Son also, as we have seen in, verse, in chapters 14 and 16, the Son has also promised to send the Spirit the helper, to apply this accomplishment. The spirit who the world cannot receive because the world neither sees him nor knows him. But the spirit is given to us by the son because he has petitioned the father that he would be with us forever and bear witness to this truth. The son will and has accomplished our redemption. This means that the plan of the Holy Trinity for the whole cosmos is not predicated upon anything that we do. It is predicated on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This means that Lazarus' response to Jesus when he called him out of the grave had nothing to do with Lazarus cooperating with God's call to him. He was raised from the dead by the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. This is why the Reformed Church has rejected the Arminian view of salvation, of the atonement. For them, they view God the Father as planning redemption and his people through the Son, but the Son accomplishes that redemption, is predicated on the people receiving that accomplishment. But what this text teaches, what the whole counsel of God teaches, is that God, the Holy Trinity, has planned our redemption through the Son and accomplished our redemption. And that the Spirit applies that redemption to us, and that the Holy Trinity is united in this one plan. The Father does not plan to save some people, and the Holy Spirit does not plan to apply that salvation only for a potential salvation of those people who come by faith. What this passage teaches is that our salvation is accomplished at the cross of Christ for all who believe.
This is the Trinitarian language that we've seen scattered throughout the entire upper room in God's wisdom for his purpose. However difficult it is for us to understand how this has played out in history, it is neither random nor will it fail. God's grace is not introduced at this moment by which Christ went to the cross but it was at the cross that this veil was lifted, where the glory of God might be seen that he has loved us in the beloved. Christ's death is effective. It does what the Father intended and planned for it to do. And it did what Jesus prayed that it would do. that we would be given, that we would be kept, that we would be sanctified, that we would be sent into the world because he has accomplished our redemption by taking us out of the world. This is what Christ has accomplished for his people. But here's the good news. No. Here's even more good news. Our salvation isn't just dependent upon Jesus. Let me say that again. Our redemption, our salvation, isn't just dependent upon Jesus. Our salvation is dependent upon the triune God, three in one. If we remove what Jesus did out of the work of the triune God, it can do nothing for us. This is the biblical truth. This is what Jesus has taught. Our redemption, our knowing, our believing, our receiving eternal life is dependent upon God's sovereign redemption of us. that we would be dead in our trespasses if it wasn't for his redemption. This is grace. This is the good news of the gospel. There is nothing you can do that earns you your salvation. It is completely and solely dependent upon the cross of Christ that the Father sent to accomplish for you. And this is what John Owen says. It is the glory of Christ at the cross where the full debt of the sinner has been paid. God cancels all suits and actions against the sinner. The payment was, was not for this or that sin, but for all sins for those whom Christ died. God cannot demand any further payment. God has obligated himself to grant pardon for those who whose debts had been paid through Christ, the law is silenced because Jesus said, it is finished. This is the benefit of us hearing this prayer. Jesus has revealed to us the eternal plan of your accomplished and definite redemption in Jesus Christ to all who believe.
And that's what's hard for us to understand. How do those two things work together? I don't know. The scripture is completely fine with leaving these two truths side by side without explanation. I would not believe it if scripture did not teach it. It was at the cross of Christ that God displayed his glory. It was at the cross that God displayed his grace. This was the plan of God the Father for your redemption. To send the Son and to pay for your sins. Not for the sins of the world, but for your sins. It has been accomplished. There's nothing more for you to add. There's nothing more for you to do. It has been secured by Christ himself. But that's not all. I have a second point. Because what else does Jesus pray in this prayer? In verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, be, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, what? So I have sent them into the world. Here's what's true. Christ's atonement is sufficient for you. Christ has saved you from your sins. This is what the Bible calls election. But the goal of your redemption is not your election. The goal of redemption is the glory of the Father. The reason that we have been saved, the reason we have been taken out of the world, the reason is because we have been sanctified and he sends us back in. To manifest his glory as his glory has been manifested to us. That all who believe in the gospel will be saved from their sins and they will be kept by God the Father Almighty because Jesus has kept them. And Jesus will never cast out those who have been given to him. We are kept by the Father. There's a story that I heard is very particular to this. When Jesus is praying that the Father might keep them, the imagery that comes to mind is a father walking down a very busy road holding the hand of his son. The son's safety is not dependent upon how strong the son's grip is. 
The son's safety is dependent upon how strong the grip of the father is. And what Jesus is telling us is that the father will keep us and never cast us out. And the father is sending us back into the world. And he's not sending us back into the world just with a hard hat on, just saying, go get them. You're on your own. What Jesus is praying for his disciples here and what we see in verse 20, the disciples who will believe us, his church, is that the Father will keep us, that the Father will send us into the world to make much of his name. This is the chief end of all mankind, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are kept by the Father because of what the Son has accomplished at the cross. Amen. Let us pray.